Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content, not just the front line with Joe and Joe. We have a great lineup there, and we are an EWTN affiliate, so you get all EWTN programming. Uh, please, on the website, veritascatholic.com, veritascatholic.com, you could offer feedback on the station and on individual shows if you like, and we certainly would welcome that. And finally, if you like what Joe and I do, we have our social media page at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV on YouTube. We have a lot of interviews that we've done there, and plus we have our political and social and cultural commentary. Um, and having said all that, today we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming to our program for the first time, Joseph Pierce. And we are going to be discussing his new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. And we're going to get into that about what is a history of true England. Now, many of you out there who uh, pay attention to Catholic media, particularly EWTN, you know who Joseph Pierce is. Having said that, a quick bio, uh, a native of England, Joseph Pierce is the internationally acclaimed author of many books, including bestsellers such as The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, and more. His books have been published and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, French, Dutch, Italian, Korean, Mandarin, Croatian, and Polish. He's hosted two 13-part TV series about Shakespeare on EWTN and has written and presented documentaries on EWTN on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, he is also director of book publishing at the Augustan Institute and editor of the St. Austin Review, um, series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, se senior instructor with Homeschool Connections, and senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative. Now, Chris Check, who's the president of Catholic Answers, had this to say about Joseph's new book that we're going to be discussing today. Quote, highest praise to Joseph Pierce for giving all the English-speaking people a true understanding of who they are by showing them from whence they came. If there is another book that makes so clear and with so much eloquence the Catholic heart and soul of Shakespeare's sceptered isle, I don't know it, close quote. Joseph Pierce, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're welcome, sir. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. Gentlemen, we're going to start with the prayer because all good things start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, but for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother, the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us, amen. St. Thomas More, pray for us. St. Teresa of Lisieux, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Joseph, I got to tell you, I mean, we talk to a lot of people, and, and that bio is very impressive. I'm going to be honest with you. But I want to talk about where you came from to that bio, because I'll be truthful with you. Uh, before this interview, I, I, I knew who you were. You know, I, we have a mutual friend, Mike Church. Um, I've listened to his Shakespeare series that you helped him with. Um, but your, your background sounds like someone who went to Harvard or Oxford. I'll be honest with you, but that's not where you came from, Joe. <laughs> so, I mean, like, honest to God, I mean, it's so impressive. It just shows how God works. And I want to talk a little bit about that uh, because, I, you know, a lot of times people could listen to Joe and I and the guests that we have, and they could be like, who are these people? You know what I'm saying? 
but we're real people. Everyone has a journey, and yours is an amazing one. So please tell us a little bit about it. Well, the, the most uh, the the way I, I find it most shocking way of introducing my past is when I give talks, which I do quite often. In fact, I'm giving one this evening, a talk on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings. A question I'm often asked is, uh, when did you first read the Lord of the Rings? And my answer is during my second prison sentence. Uh, and people think that I, I'm, that's a joke, and they laugh. <laughs> I say, no, no, during my second prison sentence. So uh, in a nutshell, Joe, uh, I tell the story at length in a book I wrote for Tan Books called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. So the clue there, of course, is in the subtitle, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love. I was, at the age of 15, uh, I actually joined uh, a white supremacist organization in my native England, as you may have gathered from my accent. I'm not from, uh, from this side of the pond. So at the age of 15, I, I joined a white supremacist organization called the National Front. I edited uh, a number of magazines for it. And for the editing of one of those magazines, I was sentenced to prison on two separate occasions for publishing material likely to incite racial hatred. And I spent, I did a, served a six month sentence and a 12 month sentence and spent my 21st and 25th birthdays in prison. Um, I was also very heavily involved in the war in Northern Ireland between the so-called Catholic tribe and the so-called Protestant tribe. I was very anti-Catholic and I was involved with the, uh, the anti-Catholic terrorist organizations uh, the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association, and the UPF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. And I was a member of an anti-Catholic secret society called the Orange Order. Um, so I was a very long way from the church. And it is by the grace of God and, 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 and by miraculous grace, in fact, that through the reading of people such as G.K. Chesterton and others, I was finally brought to my knees and then brought to the threshold of the church uh, and was received into the Catholic Church on St. Joseph's Day in 1989 when I was 28 years old. That is amazing. Like, like I'm serious. Like, and that's the reason why I wanted you to tell that is that people, you can't give up on people because if someone knew you at 21, they'd probably be like, there is no way that you would be doing what you're doing. Yet here you are. I mean, it truly, people have to understand that, that anything is possible with God. Yo, I want to, I want to, I want to chime in only to, to just to comment. Then we're going to, we're going to get into the book. Okay. Faith of our father is a history of true England, which is written by Joseph Pierce. That's why he's here to have this conversation Joe, what you just said, that, that is one of the reasons why, like I've had experience in front of Planned Parenthoods. Obviously we know what's been going on recently as far as, you know, with this, you know, Supreme court leak and everything else, what you just said, Joseph Pierce, that's what always in my mind, I try to have when I'm praying and you're confronted by people who seem very, very lost. And it's a lesson for me. I'm talking about just me as a, as a Catholic man to remember God doesn't give up on anybody. We certainly shouldn't give up on anybody because if God gave up on any of us, we'd be toast, you know, yeah. and I, I find what I find your journey and I've heard it for, for a while. Now I've been following you for a while myself um, to be, to be very inspiring, but also as a lesson, we, that's why we always have to be, we always have to be praying for people. Um, and, and like Joe said, that's a, it's an amazing journey and it's a, it's a testament to, 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 to God and, and his power. Um, let's get into the book. Let's get into the book. Joe love Joe and I love when we have people who can enlighten us about history, whether it be history of the church, history of England. You know, if, if I remember a few years ago, we had Simon Shama gave us a history of, uh, you know, a history of Britain and everything. Good documentary. I mean, I watched it, but this is a history of true England. And that's what that's what we're going to get into, because we, you know, um, a lot of people think of England just as this Protestant nation. And that's because they probably don't know the history. So I think it would be safe to say, Joseph Pierce, that by the time the Romans withdrew, what do you figure about fourth, fifth century A.D. Uh, around that time, England had become a Catholic nation. OK, yeah. talk about yeah. talk about the activity, um, if you would, of some of the early Catholic missionaries to England that led to the conversion of these of these, you know, Celtic pagans to the Roman Catholic faith. Yeah, so uh, the, the Romans basically withdrew sometime around 410 AD. They arrived uh, around 50 AD, just before 50 AD. So they were, they were in the country for about 350 years. 
um, uh, the first Christian missionaries arrived very soon after the Romans. So um, it, the, it, it appears that they arrived around 63 AD, um, so only 30 years after the crucifixion. Uh, and basically, there's been a Catholic presence in England ever since then. So for almost 2,000 years now, there's been a Catholic presence in England. And for most of English history, uh, certainly before the Romans left, the majority of people in England would have been practicing believing Catholics. And um, after the Romans left, there was there, there was a, a, we remained a large Catholic presence among the Celtic population. Uh, the pagan Germanic tribes stopped began to move in, but they were very, they, by the end of the 6th century, they were being converted to Christianity. So essentially, from the 1st century into the 16th century, when Henry VIII uh, uh, ripped uh, the Catholic Church away from the people of England against their will, it was, the English people never chose to leave Rome, it was ripped away from them by force by Henry VIII and by uh, an avaricious aristocracy who wanted to get their hands on the church land. And 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 that's and that's the history that Hollywood certainly doesn't tell. Because when you look at movies, let's say like Elizabeth, you know, it, it, it leaves a, a very bad impression of the Catholics and a very wonderful and enlightened impression of Good Queen Bess. Uh, you know, um, but remember that's why you wrote a book about the history of true England, um, and you know, not not what you get from popular culture. Joe Rasinello. We recently, uh, Joseph, interviewed some Dominicans um, at Oxford, and they commemorated the 800th anniversary of the Dominicans going to Oxford with uh, a pilgrimage. Very interesting, uh, like, journey. I followed it on Twitter, and then we had two of the young men on. Very impressive. Very impressive. And to be honest, like, to, to Joe's point, I, I wasn't really, when we were speaking with them, like, like, I didn't expect them to say that they were greeted along the way with with the open arms that they were. I mean, because we hear of like the secularization of Europe, the secularization of England. And he said, and both of these gentlemen, young guys, uh, to be honest with you, it gave me a lot of hope for the church because they were young brilliant men. And they said the whole journey, they were welcomed. And um I want you to comment on that. Talk about like Catholicism now in England. I know you're not living there, but I'm sure you still have some connections. Because um, I, I think sometimes like the remnant's still there in, in all these countries and it's alive. And I think when people see authentic Catholicism, like these two uh, young men walking in their habits through the countryside, people respond. Absolutely. And, you know, what was, one thing that was very uh, important to my own conversion was the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham, which is in England, and it's one of the oldest Marian shrines in Christendom, and was one of the major pilgrimage sites of the whole of Christendom, uh, the whole of Europe during the Middle Ages. Um, and what I what I believe is that the uh, the resurrection of that shrine, because obviously it was destroyed by Henry VIII, pilgrimages were banned there for 400 years. But throughout the 20th century, the number of pilgrims to that shrine has been increasing. Um, uh, and every time I return there, uh, it's a very special place to my own heart um, that uh, I'm, I'm so encouraged by the number of pilgrims. And you're right, number of young pilgrims. So if not just the, the remnant who have remained loyal, it's also the converts to the faith. And, and there, are, there are many converts and I think it's the converts that, in many ways, that have the uh, the verve and enthusiasm uh, to 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 uh, evangelize. Because the the Catholic remnant, the the old guard families, that they got used to sort of keeping their faith to themselves, because it was what they had to do. Three hundred years of persecution, uh, and and they're very devout. And when you see, you know, the liturgies, that very very holy uh, liturgies, the way they're practiced, and they have lots of very devout practices in the in the home, you know, the rosary, et cetera, et cetera. But they they're not very comfortable about wearing their faith on their sleeve in public. So it's the it's the converts that I think will be the, the, those that go out onto the streets and evangelize. We're gonna Joseph Pierce. We're gonna get into that a little bit, uh, a little more in the conversation about some of the more um, prominent converts, uh, particularly Newman. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I'm curious, okay. Um, your the title, the subtitle of your book, A History of True England, okay? Some people might say, well, what, 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 what do you mean by true England? I went to school. I learned about Henry VIII. I learned about all these things. What is, what do you mean by the history of 
true England. Yeah, basically what I say at the beginning of the book in the introduction is that true England is the England who remained true to the truth himself. In other words, that as Jesus Christ tells us, what you know, if you want to know, if you want to answer Pontius Pilate's question, quid est veritas, right? What is truth? Well, Jesus Christ gives us the answer because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So true England is the England who remained true to the truth himself for two thousand years. That's the history I've written. The history of Catholic England. Excellent. Thank you for that. Joe Resinello. Let's talk a little bit about the Reformation. I mean, clearly, this is where, you know, there was a break. Um, Henry VIII wanted to get married. Isn't it always about something? You know what I'm saying? Like, like particularly people in power. Um, I, I think even in people who aren't in power, when they break from Christ's church, there's always an issue. Um, in this case, he wanted to get married. Uh, to someone who wasn't his wife. Talk a little bit about the Reformation. Talk about the impact. Yeah, well, the, the first thing we have to realize is that there were three distinct Reformations in the 16th century. Um, there was the Protestant Reformation. There was the Catholic Reformation, which is sometimes called the Counter-Reformation, which was the Catholic Church's response to the Protestant Reformation. And there was the English Reformation, which is very different, because Henry VIII was not a Protestant. Henry VIII actually was very anti-Protestant and had written, uh, possibly with the help of, of uh, two saints, St. Saint Thomas More and St. John Fisher, uh, a defense of the seven sacraments um, against the ideas of Martin Luther, for which he was actually given by the Pope the title of Fidei Defensor, Defender of the Faith, ironically. Um, so when Henry VIII breaks with Rome, it's not because he's not a Catholic, it's not because he's a Protestant. So we have to distinguish between the English Reformation and the Protestant Reformation. As you rightly pointed out, it was pure politics and actually pure lust because uh, he uh, wanted a male heir. His very holy wife, um, Catherine of Aragon, uh, who I actually treat as a saint and pray to, uh, she, you know, she was unable to give him a, a, a male heir. Uh, they, they had one daughter um, and he was, wanted a male heir. And also he's probably getting tired of her. She's getting older. Uh, and so he, he started flirting with this young woman called Anne Boleyn, who is a rather notorious character, um, and wanted a divorce. Now, there was, there was nothing invalid about the marriage. And so the Pope, defending the indissolubility of Christian marriage, refused to give him a divorce because there were no grounds for divorce. So he responded by est uh, establishing a state religion, setting up a new church with himself as the head. Um, and... Uh, that, that was basically the imposition of a state religion against the will of the people. And there were many, there were, there were many uprisings throughout the 16th century by the people of England, including uh, uh, a number of uprisings around the country on the day that the mass was banned. That was during the reign of Edward VI, um, Henry VIII's son by yet another wife. Um, um, but uh, um, so that the people of England did not want to lose faith the faith was ripped away from them. They did not want the, the, the dissolution of the monasteries. The monasteries were the very fabric of the nation's culture and the, the, the hospitals, the inns, the schools, the whole social fabric of looking after the poor and the needy uh, was done by the monasteries. Once they, once they were removed, there was no, there was no safety net to, to help the poor. So the, Eng the English people did not want the Reformation, it was forced upon them by the king and by uh, the aristocrats who basically said, well, if we don't join him, someone else is going to get, get all the spoils of this church land. So basically following their greed and not their conscience, they basically became the king's right-hand right men in the raping and pillaging of England of its faith. Joseph Pierce is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello, and we are in the breach, and we're talking to Joseph about his new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Just to uh, follow up on that uh, real quick, Joseph Pierce. So what you're saying is that all the crap I learned in college about, you know, just the idea that it, it was Henry VIII that was trying to rebel against the oppressive Catholic Church because they wouldn't let him just get a divorce is a lot of nonsense. And, yeah, and, 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 and the fact is that what happened, it was the establishment of an oligarchy and a plutocracy and something which is very much not in the interest, not just of the faith of the people, but it's just of the poor. And, you know, how do they respond? All of a sudden, all the poor had nowhere to go because all the monasteries have been basically turned into stately homes. 
by the aristocrats who weren't interested in looking after the poor. The, 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 the Elizabeth I, for instance, responded by sending up the poor laws that if someone was caught begging, they would be punished for having their ears cut off. If they were caught begging a second time, they were executed. So how anybody can talk about this somehow being something which is liberating from, from the church is only possible if we have a, a complete ignorance of the reality on the ground. You know, I mean, Joseph Pierce, real quick, Joe, you know, social media has its has its problems. OK, don't get me wrong. But one of the things that Joe and I and I'm sure you do value about social media is that we in our own limited way, but we're out there trying. We're in the breach, as Joe and I always say. But we're, at least we're trying to blow up all the common narratives that we hear constantly throughout our lives. Again, as I mentioned earlier to you, Joseph Pierce, about that trash movie, Elizabeth, okay, where you'd come away thinking she's the most light, enlightened monarch to ever grace the planet Earth. In the meantime, you know, cutting people's ears off because they're begging for food. You know, and, yeah, I'm, and, I'm, and also, I mean, let's be blunt about this. How did Elizabeth choose? Uh, and it was her choice. She was the, the, the head of state. How did she choose to punish people for the hideous crime of just being a Catholic priest? They were hanged, drawn, and quartered. And I'm going to give you the gory details. So if anybody wants to talk about bloody, you know, good queen best, that's why I call her bloody best. The part of my, the, one of the chapters of Elizabeth is bloody best. Basically, Catholic priests would be... Um, dragged on a hurdle through the streets, uh, and then when they arrived at the scaffold, they would be hanged, but only in such a way that they would be cut down quickly. The hanging was really just to, um, to ridicule them. They were cut down alive, and then they were, and then they were, were, were tied on a table, uh, and at this point, they, while they're still alive, they were castrated. Their, 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 part of their bodies were cut open, and one by one, their internal organs were removed and thrown on the fire. The last organ to be, to be removed was the heart, by which time, presumably and mercifully, the priest had died. And then his body, his head was cut off, his body was cut into four, thus, thus quartered, and the four parts of the body and the head would be stuck on spikes around the edge of the town to warn other people about fraternizing with priests. So again, if anybody wants to talk about good queen best, they should have those facts rammed down their throat. Thank you. Thank you for that, Joseph Pierce, because that's what we need to do. We Again, blowing up narratives, blowing up myths. That's one of the things we do here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Racinello. I was going to say, I mean, you, you live here in America now for some time, and I'm sure you're familiar with the politics, and things have gotten kind of crazy here. There's no question. Uh, we're seeing a radicalization of our government in a way maybe we've never seen. But I'll tell you this, though. A balance of power does limit people like this and when i hear stories like this or what's taking place with with uh you know in russia or what's taking place in other parts i i do have an appreciation for that balance of power i mean because to be honest with you you're talking about an event that's just like almost from an american perspective people that hear this like how could that take place that somebody could just all of a sudden usurp everything and just change everything and basically to the detriment of the common man, whereas in this country, as bad as it is, and it can be, and there are many bad aspects about our government currently, the balance of power saves us. What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that is something to highlight and be thankful for. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the important thing is this, is this is Catholic social teaching, and it exists in other places apart from the United States, but certainly in, in, in existing United States, something which is called subsidiarity that basically the power ultimately should reside uh, in not so much the individual as the family, but certainly at, at a local level, and power should be devolved upwards. Now, one thing you have in this country, uh, and you still have it, although it's disappearing, is uh, power at grassroots level. So you have local government with power. You have state government with power. Um, bit by bit, the federal government, which is the furthest from the people, but just because of the size of it, um, is usurping more and more of that local power. So what's necessary always is to have the, you know, there's two processes that go on in politics. There's the centralization of power into fewer and fewer hands, economically and politically, and there's decentralization of power into more hands. And the, de the decentralization of power, what the church calls subsidiarity, uh, is necessary. You do have that as part of your constitution here, and that's why the, the US constitution is something that needs to be defended. Because insofar as it's not defended, those freedoms could disappear. 
Yeah, I, I, I wish people would get that through their head. Joe and I always say on the show, Joseph Pierce, what we need in America is a, a, a good practical application of Catholic social teaching, and we hammer home all the time. Americanism calls it federalism. We call it subsidiarity. The church presented that a long time before the United States Constitution was ratified. Power should be at, at the bottom. And it's one of, one of the things that, we, you know, we, we again, people need to understand, like you said, the federal government is over there. They don't really, you know, right. they pretend that they can actually solve your problems at a local level. No, you're supposed to solve your problems at a local level. Let's and, you know, one of the things, Joe, that, uh, you know, again, getting back to my book on, on the history of New England, one of, the, one of the documents that was foundational on the founding of the United States was the uh, Magna Carta, uh, which was uh, signed in 1215, King John, uh, who was becoming a tyrant, uh, was basically forced by the barons to sign a document where he he acknowledged there are limits on the on the rights and powers of the king. So you know you, the, the, a government has to have limits placed upon it so it doesn't run riot, and that any, any good constitution requires that. So the Magna Carta is one of those things which inspired the founding fathers of the United States to ensure that big government is limited um, by subsidiarist means. Ultimately, local government has to be preserved and protected from the usurpation of power by big government. Absolutely. Jojo, where do you want to go? I want to talk a little bit about Thomas More. Uh, we mentioned him briefly because he's an amazing person because not only was he a devout Catholic, but he put it all on the line. And I mean, to be honest with you, he's people, especially what's going on now in America, people should look. We always look to the saints. They point us to Christ. Talk about what he did and about the sacrifice that he made. Yeah, so I think Sir Thomas More uh, is very important as a as a as a. Um... Uh, a patron saint of the laity in many respects. But let me explain, because you know he was he was martyred alongside St John Fisher. They were a few days apart, but effectively St John Fisher was the Bishop of Rochester, the only bishop, uh, Catholic bishop of England, had the courage to stand up and, and lay down his life. The rest basically all, to one degree or another, caved in to the will of Henry VIII. But St John Fisher was a, 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 a celibate man. An old man who had, as as a priest, um, married the church. St. Thomas More, on the other hand, was a, 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 a layman and a married man with children. So, whereas, the, if you like, the, 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 the secular state had little leverage on St. John Fisher. If he was had the courage of his convictions, there was nothing they could take away from him. He had no real possessions. He had no wife and children. With St. Thomas More, however, they blackmailed him. I mean, they, they got his wife to come in and beg him uh, to, 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 to surrender his principles. They got his favorite daughter, Margaret Roper, to come in and beg him. And they started giving away his property to uh, his enemies. In fact, a lot of it to Anne Boleyn's family by Henry VIII, while St. Thomas More is still alive. So he can actually see his own wife and children being turned into beggars because of his uh, his firm stand on his Catholic principles. So we, we see here actually a good argument for the celibacy of the clergy, because we want to have a clergy that are married to the church, that if necessary will lay down their life for the sheep. Whereas married people are always going to be compromised because, you know, okay, I'm willing to die, but I don't want you to kill my wife or children or to make my wife and children beggars. And so th this makes things much more difficult. So, so St. Thomas More, I think, showed great courage. He said, ultimately, I have to pay whatever price is necessary you know, to, to, to remain true to Jesus Christ and his church against this tyrant. And for that, he's a great cause, I think, of strength and encouragement for the best of us. As Joe said, Joseph Pierce, uh, you know, looking to the saints, you're never going to go wrong when you want to see when you want to see a good example. Obviously, a lot of what we are going through in America right now, all Catholics in America and others, all Christians should read about St. Thomas More or at least watch the movie, A Man for All Seasons. Let's take a break real quick. You're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. We are way in the breach with Joseph Pierce on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. We're discussing Joseph's new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Uh, Joseph, we'll mention it again later, but real quick, where can folks buy the book and where, where can folks learn more about you uh, as far as social media and stuff like that? 
Well, then keep abreast of what I'm up to, the podcasts I do and the books I'm writing, the articles I'm writing at my personal website, jpierce.co. And the quickest and best way of buying the book, uh, don't go to Amazon, uh, would be to go to ignatius.com, the publisher, Ignatius Press. Absolutely. We, we constantly have to emphasize we need to support our Catholic authors. We need to support our Catholic publishers. We need to support our Catholic media outlets. With that, we're going to take a break at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Frontline with Joe and Joe with Joseph Pierce. Stick around for another segment. We'll be right back. Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear The Frontline with Joe and Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, tune in for the only late-night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that, at 12.30, you can hear the Focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are in the breach with Joseph Pierce on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. We are discussing Joseph's new book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Joe Resinello. Uh, Joseph, you were talking on the other side of the break about Sir Thomas More, what happened to him, what he gave up, and you also juxtaposed that uh, against uh, John Fisher. I, I want to talk about a little, expand on the Thomas More conversation a little bit, because I'm a student of people. I watch them, saintly people, um, and I have watched like people like John Paul II, Benedict Rochelle, who I knew in the States, holy men, how God opens our hand. Like we leave this earth with nothing, but Christ willingly laid his life down. You see, we don't do that. Like I can say it. I have five children. I have a wife. And as you were talking about the sacrifices of Thomas More, I was putting myself in his place. And I said, oh, my gosh, that is a horrendous situation. What would I do? It's easy to say I would do the right thing, but I sure as heck don't know. Let's be honest. But God knows what we need and the need for us as Catholic men to trust him. Like I think of Benedict Rochelle. He had a little bit of a he miss said something on EWTN and they took him off because of some psychological analysis he had to say about priests with the crisis. And maybe it was a it was an act of humility. Maybe God wanted to humble him like in a way that he didn't even know he needed to be before he went to heaven. Talk about that. Like as common men, we're just men, but the need to hold on to this life loosely because Thomas More had a lot to give up, a lot more than I did, but he did it. I mean, you know, make your comment, because, I mean, you're a man, you're in the world, and to be honest with you, you've seen a lot of it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'd like to talk about that in terms of uh, the cross and in terms of suffering, and also, if I may, take a quick digression in terms of literature, because I'm a literature person, as well as somebody who writes books of history, and there's a one of the finest novels of the 20th century is called Brideshead Revisited. It's by uh, a convert to the Catholic faith, Evening War. The, the title Brideshead Revisited, the, the name Brideshead is the name of a stately home, a Catholic family's home. And it, the symbolism is a bride's head. Well, who's the bride's head? The bridegroom. In other words, this, this, this family in some sense and the home is uh, a symbol for the church. Now, there's an illicit relationship, so very Henry VIII-ish going on, if you like, between two married people who are having an effectively an adulterous relationship. And the metaphor that's used in that novel for what destroys that is an avalanche. 
In other words, they've got their own little cozy Arctic hut where they've got everything arranged just as they want in their own little small world. But outside, there's a buildup of snow. And when the sun comes out, which basically met metaphor for grace, an avalanche comes and destroys everything. And it's only when everything they planned in a worldly sense is destroyed that both of them actually come to Christ. So in, in some sense, we see this as a metaphor for the crucifixion. And we can also say that the whole of humanity is, is at Golgotha, not merely in the sense of nailing Christ to the cross, though we are there in that capacity of nailing him to the cross. We're also being crucified beside him because all of us are going to be crucified. Suffering is impossible. And, it, and the paradox, sorry, avoiding suffering is impossible. And the paradox is that those people who spend most time trying to avoid suffering end up suffering more than those who embrace it. So we are going to be crucified either side of Christ. The only question we, ha we have to uh, answer is, are we going to be like the good thief? Or are we going to be like the bad thief? Are we going to blame everybody, God, our neighbor, for our suffering? Or are we going to accept and embrace our suffering uh, as the means of, uh, of um, our own redemption by the power of God's grace? So again, uh, this, this, is, this is the determining question, because there's a character in another novel by another convert, Maurice Sparing, a priest character says, the acceptance of sorrow is the meaning, is the secret of life. When you understand that, you'll understand everything. So not suffering, but the acceptance of suffering. It's what we do with it when we get it. Um, and so we, we have to be like Christ. Christ accepted the suffering. The only difference is he was a completely blameless victim where we are not. I, I, I think that that is probably one of the things that, or one of the reasons why people don't want to listen to the Catholic Church, because I, I think people, but now, uh, I don't want to sound muddled here, Joseph Pierce, but I think people actually think they could get through life without suffering. And I think that there are those who know that that's a lie, who would take advantage of those people and present them these lies that would convince them, you can live this life with no suffering. You don't have to suffer. You know, we have all this sex over here. We have all these drugs over here. In other words, you could just, we'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about the drudgery of life, okay? And, and I think you're exactly right. It, the, the, the slave masters convince you that you, they're going to liberate you by convincing you that they can provide you a life of no suffering, while at the same time, what they're doing is they're putting the handcuffs on you. Am I wrong about that, Joseph Pierce? You're completely correct. And it goes back, though, to the, to the dawn of time. Um, and this is exactly what the sin of pride is. I mean, that's why it's so successful. Because what pride is, is saying, look, you don't have to do uh, something you don't want to do. You can do your own thing. Selfishness, right? Selfishness, putting yourself first, is very, it's very seductive, right? So, but the, the, the consequence of putting yourself first is taking the path of least resistance. In other words, um, don't, don't put yourself anywhere where it's, you're, you're going to have to do something you don't like. In other words, avoid suffering at all costs. You take the path of least resistance, which leads to hell. But it doesn't just lead, lead to hell in the hereafter. It leads to hell in the here and now. This is exactly the people that spend their lives taking the path of least resistance that make their lives most miserable. That's the irony and the paradox, is that when we do our own thing, we screw things up for ourselves. Oh, that's a given. I learned that by 22. My way doesn't work. That is an absolute <laughs> given. Joseph Pierce is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Ursinello in The Breach. We're discussing Joseph's new book, which is out by Ignatius Press, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you. I want to highlight something you said about uh, John Fisher that struck me when you said it. You said he was the only one that stood up and that the rest of the, the bishops didn't. It, it, it basically tells me what's going on to a degree now. You, you know, you have good bishops, bishops who stand up. They're there, but a lot of times people are silent or they just go along. I mean, I could remember hearing when uh, Humane Vitae, I, I, I was a baby, but when Humane Vitae came out, 80% of the bishops in Canada wrote a letter to the Pope. Who was right? The Pope. He was right. He's completely right. But no one went along. Like, talk about that, how 
things haven't changed. And there's always that voice that stands stalwart. John Fisher, by the way, we didn't remember those other ones. We remember John Fisher. You know, make it like, what do you think about that with regard to what we see now? I mean, you see what's going on in the, I, I know I'm going off track a little bit, but what's going on in Germany with this crazy synodal way that they're coming up with these ideas. These, these ideas aren't the ideas of the church. And frankly, they'll be forgotten. Yeah, well, the first thing about Germany, just to, before I get, get to the, the, the key to answering your question, is the problem with the German church is in the pocket of the German government. Um, that is basically, does, very few people go to church there, but they get huge amounts of money from the government. So they've actually done what, the, uh, what happened in England, is that they've sold out to the power of the state. So, so that, that's, no, that, that's why they're very worldly, because they basically owe their, their existence to the world. But let me, let's go back to answer your question in its essence. The, the whole template for history, the pattern for the fabric of history that follows is established in the gospel, right? That the Christ chooses 12 people. Of those 12 people, almost one-tenth of them, one-twelfth of them is a traitor. Is actually a wolf in shepherd's clothing. Um, and then of the remaining 11, um, all of them flee at the time of Christ's greatest need, and only one of them has the courage to be there at the crucifixion. The rest are... are, are... So I that about 10 of, of, of bishops are saints, or at least trying very hard to become saints, but one-tenth are wolves in shepherd's clothing who are actually enemies of Christ and the church, even though they wear the bishop's mitre. And the other eight-tenths, the other four-fifths, are lukewarm, who for whatever reason don't have the courage of their convictions to stand up and be counted and, and, and become saints. That's been the pattern about the whole of history. And one of the glorious things about studying history is you see that and you understand that this is, that this is the way things are. Now, how God judges that, in his merciful providence uh, at, the, at the last judgment is, is none of our business. But that's the, but looking at this veil of tears and this land of exile, the prayers say what they say because it's true, that this is a place where the church is the church militant, the church of war. We are meant to be Milus Christi, soldiers for Christ. Um, and um, this is not a place for cowards. It's not a place for people to sit on the fence. It's a place for people to stand up and be counted or else you're not fighting for Christ and his church. You're actually either doing nothing, which is playing the devil's role, or you're worse than that. Let's, um, let, let, let's stay on that for a second, okay, because we want to bring up somebody. Joseph Pierce, God can use, God by his own power can change any human person, can change their heart and convert them. God also uses other people to convert a great many people. And one of the people that he, he that he used was um, uh, Cardinal Newman, all right? Um, and his conversion is powerful because it wasn't just an individual conversion. He, 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 he enlightened Protestant England, you know, because he was Protestant. He was an Anglican, okay? Talk about how powerful a moment was it, uh, Cardinal Newman's conversion and the effect it had on, uh, at that time, at least 19th century England? Well, the, the key thing is here is that, that E.K. Chesterton says um, that the Catholic Church has died many times and risen again from the dead because it worships the God who knew the way out of the grave. Uh, and one thing you see when you actually look at history is that's exactly what has happened. There have been times when the church has been a mess, where if you were, you know, being realistic, uh, it's all over. And in every, every generation, there's, there, there's this temptation to pessimism or despair, because we can see the, the majority of people not being who they should be. But then look at this in England. So from the 1530s to the 1680s, Catholic priests were being put to death for being priests. Catholic laity were being put to death for hiding Catholic priests from the authorities. And after this 150 years of persecution, there was a further 150 years uh, of, of softer persecution. So we had first from execution to persecution, where Catholics were second-class citizens in their own country. Then we talk about 
you know, the, the, the plight of, of African-Americans, and, and absolutely, it's, it's, it, it's a scandalous injustice, but it's not just African-Americans. Catholic Englishmen, 300 years, were second-class citizens in their own country. So by the early 19th century, there were only a few tens of thousands of these bold and noble families that, uh, that have stayed true to the faith, true to true England for 300 years of persecution. If you were a realist, it's over. Right? The Catholic Church is dead and buried as far as England's concerned. It's over. Uh, and then you have this, the, the, these movements arising out of romanticism, neo-medievalism, one of which is the Oxford movement in the Church of England, of which John Henry Newman is the leader. And St. John Henry Newman it, it was so revered as a preacher, as an intellect, as a holy man, uh, as a historian, that he was really, you know, everybody looked up to him. So when Newman becomes a Catholic, it's, it's seismic. It sends shockwaves through the establishment of England and almost overnight makes the Catholic Church respectable. Um, because if someone like Newman can convert, and he has all the reasons he gives for doing so, but this is a rational decision, um, then the Catholic Church all of a sudden it has to be taken seriously. And in Newman's wake, you know, there, there, were, there were thousands of converts. And then coupled with that... We have the because of the Irish potato famine, the Irish diaspora uh, around the world, and of course they, many came to the United States, uh, but many came to England. So you had this at same, same time you had this higher echelon intelligentsia and even aristocratic Catholicism that is brought in, if you like, because of this Newman effect, and then you have uh, a working class Irish Catholic element, and overnight, and the figures for the number of new Catholic churches being built. Catholic schools being opened, the number of practicing Catholics, the number of baptisms, it was an explosion in the second half of the 19th century. There's a, the, the only proper word for it is a resurrection from the dead. Absolutely. Thank God. Joe Rosanello. I want to talk a little bit about the great uh, literary tradition. We alluded to that in other questions. But before I do, I want to mention a, a person to you, a countryman of yours, Malcolm Mugridge. He was an intellectual. Um, I believe he went to Oxford. If it was not Oxford, it was Cambridge. I believe he was in the service. God used this man to bring Mother Teresa to the world. He did not believe in God. Talk a little bit about his significance. This man, who probably would be like equivalent to say someone on CNN now, you know, in America, intellectual, does not believe in God. He encounters a woman who's four foot ten, you know, basically doing menial work. His whole life changes. Talk about his significance on the world, and that was the instrument God used to bring the missionaries of charity to the world. Yeah, well, so again, God does move in mysterious ways. Malcolm Mugridge was a, um, a Marxist in the 1930s, but he was also a realist and an honest man. And he went to Russia, he went to the Soviet Union, and he saw the realities of communism on the ground and exposed it. He wrote a wonderful book in the 30s. He looked at the state of the world in the, in the 1930s with fascism, Nazism, communism, secular fundamentalism, basically. Uh, and then he becomes a talking head, one of this first generation of, of, of people on TV. And he's so famous. I remember when I was growing up, there was a, a comedy program where you had mimics. Um, it's called Who Do You Do? And, it, and, and it's mimics. And Malcolm Mugridge was one of the most impersonated people going. And everybody knew exactly who he was as soon as someone imitated him. So he's very famous and then somewhat cynical. And then he writes this, uh, uh, so he does this documentary, uh, Something Beautiful for God, uh, on Mother Teresa, uh, and has a, an astonishing conversion story himself, as well as being the agent by which her story is brought to the world. Her story converts him personally. And I actually love the, um, the uh, uh, press conference when he was received into the church. Uh, he became a Catholic when he was an old man in his 70s. I think it was 1980, around that time, 1982 even. He was about 78 years old, I think. And there was this cynical journalist. And this cynical journalist said, OK, Mr. Mugridge, so you know, when you were younger, you had a great deal of fun. You know, Mugridge, amongst other things, was a serial fornicator. I had numerous affairs with his unfaithful to his wife and children. Um, and so this, this, for this journalist, this was fun. Right. Um, 
you had lots of fun when you were younger. Uh, and now that you're too old to have fun, you've discovered religion and are telling the rest of us that we shouldn't have fun. How would you respond to that? And his answer was just perfect. He said, I regret all my sins, especially insofar as they've hurt others. In other words, fun comes at a price. Uh, but he said, but I don't regret the path I've taken. Because if the path I've taken has led me to the foot of the cross, I can't regret the path. So he had actually, you know, great mysticism that even through his sins, God was riding straight with crooked lines and bringing him to the foot of the cross, probably in uh, seeing how much suffering he was causing his wife and children through his selfishness, um, through his behavior, that mortification, that inner crucifixion brings him to his knees. So I think it's a beautiful conversion in old age uh, of, of a very important figure in the 20th century. I, 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 it's, I'm so glad you, you illustrated it that way, Joseph Pierce at the front line with Joe and Joe, because whenever I think, um, and I never read that about Muggeridge, about that, that press conference, but it speaks to me personally because I always think in my mind, I can't regret anything in my life and I've done terrible things, but I honestly Got, you know, I've learned to get that out of my head because had I gone in a different direction, I might not be, at least in as much as I can be now, a, a faithful Catholic and close to Christ. I, I might have been something else, but I might not have been Catholic and my soul might be in jeopardy. So, I, you know, I think people should think that way about their, their past, especially, right. you know. Yeah, can I comment on that, Joe? Because I think this is very true. So obviously, obviously, I went to prison twice. We talked about my past at the beginning of the program. Um, you know, when I was young, be before, yeah, before I got adolescence and went off the rails, I was a very well-adjusted boy. Uh, I was very intelligent. And my father had plans for me to become a bank manager. You know, we we're a working-class family. My dad was a carpenter. But, you know, you should go and be a bank manager or something. And if I'd gone on and remained well-adjusted, uh, went to university, and, and my father's wishes for me had come true, and I'd become some, some suburban bank manager living a bourgeois life, suburbia, uh, remaining an, an, an agnostic, a respectable agnostic the whole of my life. Would I rather that? Or would, would I rather have gone through the horrible things I, I, I went through, to have done the horrible things I did, to have gone to prison twice, and eventually find the foot of the cross and cross the threshold into the mystical body of Jesus Christ? You bet your life I'd rather have taken the path I've taken than that respectable path that my father wanted me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe, we probably have about eight or nine minutes left. Where do you want to go? Well, let's talk, you know, the literary tradition a little bit more. I mean, Shakespeare was Catholic. Uh, how did his faith influence his writing? As I mean, Shakespeare influenced the world. And clearly, his faith had a big say in that influence. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem is, of course, the vast majority of people don't read Shakespeare uh, in a way that Shakespeare's own audience would have understood him. But very briefly, uh, you know, because we won't have time to talk about this at length as necessary, I've written three books on the Catholic Shakespeare, and there's, there, there are two ways of, 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 uh, of seeing Shakespeare's Catholicism. One is the biographical and historical evidence, in other words, the evidence of his life and times. Uh, and I wrote a book called The Quest for Shakespeare, The Bard of Avon and the Church of Rome, uh, which gives that evidence. And I've written two other books, where the other way of seeing it is, is the textual evidence. What's the evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism to be found in his works, in his plays, his sonnets, his poems? So I wrote a book called Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays, and another book called uh, Shakespeare on Love, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet. So um, uh, Shakespeare's a profoundly Catholic author, living at a time where it's against the law to be a Catholic, he almost certainly knew uh, martyrs, such as the Jesuit martyrs from Robert Southall. There's an abundance of evidence for that, which I give in my, my books. We see it in, not just in, the, in, in Shakespeare's life, but also in his works. He alludes to the poetry of St. Robert Southall on many occasions. So, um, yeah, so probably, arguably, along with Dante, the greatest writer in the whole of Christendom ever, uh, is, uh, is as Catholic as Dante himself. I, I, I really sometimes I shake my head if people want to know whether or not Shakespeare was Catholic. Did you watch or did you read the first scene of Hamlet? He's visited by his father who's neither in heaven nor hell. All right. Who's, <laughs> by, by the way, in the Mel Gibson production of Hamlet, Paul Schofield 
um, played Hamlet's father brilliantly. Um, I remember, I almost felt like I was in purgatory. That's how great Paul Schofield was. Um, but I just, I just wanted to throw that in. But we're on, we're on literature. Um, I, for one, have, uh, have read a lot of T.S. Eliot, okay? I have a profound uh, love of T.S. Eliot from The Wasteland, The Hollem, and The Four Quartets. Um, how has the entire Catholic literary tradition in England contributed to the flowering of the faith? The, the, the sustaining the faith, even in that remnant, but then the flowering of the faith, you know, let's say, later on. And I, and, and I might as well throw in, you know, C.S. Lewis also. Yeah, so obviously Eliot and Lewis are not technically Catholics, but they are they owe, if you like, uh, who they are as literary figures to the Catholic literary revival, which really does begin with the conversion of Newman in 1845. Newman, as well as being a great theologian and historian and preacher uh, and saint, was also a great writer. So he wrote two novels. He also wrote some great one, some wonderful poetry. So he he receives into the church in 1866. Uh, a young man, uh, convert to the faith, received by Newman himself, Gerard Manny Hopkins, who goes on to become a Jesuit priest and, and in my, my opinion, one of the finest poet of the Victorian age. And the, and the Victorian age in literature is a golden age in literature. So to have a poet who, uh, uh, who can be considered the greatest poet in that golden age is something special. And then in the 20th century, you have the conversion of, uh, of G.K. Chesterton uh, and lots of people influenced by Chesterton and their conversion. Even in war, we've talked about, um, I could carry on, Secrets of Soon, Ronald Knox, Robert Hugh Benson, the great Catholic novelist and priest. Um, but T.S. Eliot, uh, you know, that his, his poem, The Wasteland, uh, is, a, a, is, is uh, showing disillusionment with the disillusionment. That's the paradox. In other words, he's basically showing modern modernity and its lack of faith um, and its lack of morality. Uh, as a desert, as a wasteland. Uh, and at the end of the poem, you know, it begins with the, the crowing of the, of the cock, crowing of the rooster, the beginning of which, bring, which brings rain, uh, this, this, this birth, this morning, this, this renewal, and ends, of course, with, uh, with the, the, the peace that passeth all understanding. So uh, it's, a, it's a conversion poem. Uh, and, you know, Elliot, when Elliot becomes a, becomes a Christian, right, he joins the Anglican Church, but he says, I am... Uh, a monarchist, a classicist, and a Catholic. He, de he, de he, de he declares himself to be Catholic. He just believed it was possible to be Catholic in the Church of England, which is a problem. They, it's always one of the most moving passages in the wasteland for me is I, I think I've heard it called the water song or the water, you know, where if there, if there was water and no rock and rock and no water. And it's just like, you just don't get any more Catholic than that. Uh, and, and it's almost sad, the last line of that where it says, but there is no water. Um, and that's his commentary on, 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 on modern times. There, it's, you know, what are the roots that clutch? What branches grow from this, th this thorny rubbish? I, and he said this is 1922. It's prophetic because, because we're living in a time where there is no water. There are, or there are those, there is what, but people are looking to pull up those roots, particularly the Catholic roots, and, and, and discard them. But what's left? There's nothing. There's nothing to clutch onto. It's 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 really like nothingness. That's what modern. I think that's what he was commenting, or that is exactly what he was commenting on. I, um, I, I agree. I agree completely, Joe. But we do need to remember, as there is a but, that that's not how the poem ends. The poem ends with the coming of rain. The poem ends with the coming of dawn, with the with the crowing of the rooster. Uh, the poem ends with the conversion of the poet. Um, and in other words, where, where do we find this living water? We don't find it in the world. We don't find it anywhere and anything that the world has to offer. Um, where we find it is in baptism. We find it in the living waters of Christ's church. You find it nowhere else. So, so that's the whole point. If, we, if the world tries to get by without the church, it becomes a desert. Absolutely. Joe Resinola, we have time for one more quick question. We only have about a minute and a half or so. I want to little, talk a little bit about Tolkien. You, you mentioned earlier that we are the church militant. Tolkien understood this, that we are at war, mostly with ourselves, but we are at <clears throat> war with the present age. Talk a little bit about Tolkien and kind of juxtapose that with what's going on presently for all of us who are Catholic. Joseph well, Pierce, we have, about a, we have about a minute and a half, Joe. 
Yeah, as so obviously I'm going to keep this very brief. So I'm going to actually summarize and, and leave people to check things out. Again, I've written uh, three books on Tolkien. So uh, Frodo's Journey and Bilbo's Journey, Discovering the Hidden Meaning of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, two separate books, uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. But Tolkien said, that, and I'm quoting him word for word here, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Uh, the Ring is destroyed on March the 25th, which is the feast not just of the Annunciation, but the traditional date of the crucifixion. So you, the, the power of the ring is connected to the power of sin. So uh, it, it's deeply theological work. The key thing I'd like to say maybe by way of concluding, however, because we talked about T.S. Eliot and now J.R.R. Tolkien, that this Catholic revival to an England that seemed to be, Catholicism seemed to be dead in the early 19th century, produced the greatest poetry of the 20th century in the Wasteland of Four Quartets, one of the most popular books ever written in The Lord of the Rings, and for me, the greatest novel of the 20th century in Brideshead Revisited, which I mentioned earlier. So the Catholic Church was now back at the center of culture and at the very pinnacle of it, uh, not just popular, but best. Joseph Pierce, the book is Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Where could people buy the book and where could people learn more about you, watch some of your lectures and, and presentations and things like that? Well, they can follow me by going to my personal website, jpierce.co, where I publish podcasts and articles, and they can get the book by going to ignatius.com, Faith of Our Fathers. Joseph Pierce, it has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. That was a great conversation, and we know our audience is going to be enlightened by it. So go out there, <clears throat> buy the book, Faith of Our Fathers, A History of True England. Thank you all uh, out there for joining us here at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And please follow Joe and I on social media at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV primarily on YouTube. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.